Can't think of a better way to describe prayer than just what we've heard in that song. Turn your eyes toward Jesus and look full in his beautiful face. Of course, the word of God is a picture of Christ, but prayer is also that amazing opportunity for us to look into his face and to pray to him. Prayer, it would seem, is one of the more perplexing of our spiritual activities. There are all kinds of ideas of what prayer is about or what prayer, how prayer should be conducted and on and on, such things. And one of the things we rarely get the opportunity to do, though, is although we pray together publicly, there's usually one person leading and the rest of us uh, hopefully agreeing in prayer regularly when we get together in small groups. Maybe one person is praying and we're agreeing in prayer, but, but not often do we get the opportunity to actually pray together the same prayer and agree on the same things as a body of believers. The Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, which is found in the Scriptures, is one of those prayers that most of us learned since we were little kids. Most of us grew up in public school, if not in church, learning the Lord's Prayer. In fact, how many of you know the Lord's Prayer just because of public school? You learned it in school. Lots of hands. In fact, more hands went up in the first service, which tells me this must be a younger audience. That's not a good thing, Calvin. Because that means that you grew up in a corrupt system or an increasingly corrupt system that just ignored the living God. And sadly, if I were to speak in front of a young adults group or perhaps a senior high or a junior high group and were to ask them if they learned to pray in school, the answer would be no, we did not. So I think it would be really good for us this morning because we so rarely get something like this, an opportunity like this, to just recite the Lord's Prayer together. We all know it, or we should all know it, and we can agree together on that prayer. But before we stand together and do that, there is one phrase in the Lord's Prayer that most of us have learned to, and, and it's quite legitimate because it comes out of Matthew. Um, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive those as we forgive our debtors, or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Often we've learned that. And that is right out of the Matthew text. But I love the way Luke has, has um, recorded uh, the Lord's Prayer. And he has put the, he has put the words in there that, that I think describe the essence of the meaning, which is, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's what the debts and trespasses means, but sins narrows it down for us and helps us to sense the emotion of it. So if your memory doesn't click into what you're so used to saying, debts or trespasses, let's try and say sins in that phrase when we pray. So let's stand together and, and uh, pray together the disciples' prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins 
as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. We want to take a close look at that particular prayer today, and I want to direct your attention to Luke chapter 11. I want to look at Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. I want to include in our teaching the illustrations that he gives, that Jesus uh, teaches at the end of, of the chapter. As I said, um, of all the spiritual activities, prayer may be the most perplexing. Perhaps your opinion of prayer is similar to Huckleberry Finn in this great story, Huckleberry Finn. One day he said this, Miss Watson, she took me in the closet and prayed, but nothing come of it. She told me to pray every day, and whatever I asked for, I would get it, but it weren't so. I tried it. Once I got a fish line, but no hooks. It weren't any good to me without hooks. I tried for the hooks three or four times, but somehow I couldn't make it work. By and by, one day I asked Miss Watson to try for me, but she said I was a fool. She never told me why. And I couldn't make it out no way. I sat down one time back in the woods and had a long think about it. I says to myself, if a body can get anything they pray for, why don't Deacon Wynne get back the money he lost on pork? Why can't the widow get back her silver snuff box that was stole, and why can't Miss Watson fat up? No, says I to myself, there ain't nothing in it. Sometimes we, um, we wonder about prayer because we mistakenly think that prayer maybe is my moment to become sovereign over my life. I can go to God for a moment and ask Him for the things that I want, and, and He's expected to deliver on them but regularly he doesn't. Or perhaps we struggle with prayer because prayer is so intimate. We can't face it because we can't face God. Our life is not in the right shape to draw into an intimate relationship with God, so we don't. Remember when Adam and Eve failed the Lord, the first thing that they did? They ran away and hid from the sight of the Lord. And Satan not only wants to keep us sinning, but he wants to keep us hiding, hiding from the Lord. He not only wants to ruin our walk with God, but he wants to interfere with our talk with God as well. Sometimes we're only too happy to oblige him. 
We say we'll, we'll pray for one another, but we rarely do. We, we say to people who ask us for something, well, I'll pray about that before I make the decision, but, but we don't pray very urgently about it because we've already made our minds up when we say that. Nothing God has to say to us is going to change our mind usually, and we hope for the usual silence from heaven that we often get, and then we can go on our merry way and do whatever we want. So prayer becomes sometimes something we just ignore because A, we don't get what we ask for, B, we're sinning and we can't face the Lord, or for some reason we just grow weary of our relationship. I think it's important for us to understand something. Many of us, unfortunately, try to commodify prayer. We try to make prayer some sort of market relationship with God. We, we, we've come to the place where we believe that, that prayer is really necessary when we have a shopping list of requests, and so we go to God in prayer only when it's necessary. Of course, we use slogans like there's power in prayer, or prayer changes things, and there's truth to those statements, but they're really all about our desire to, to get from God what we want, to somehow be in, the, in a marketplace relationship with the living God. But that's not what prayer is about. Prayer is not first and foremost a, 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 to be commodified. It's, it's not first and foremost to be, well, I get to talk to the, to, the, to the Lord of heaven and tell him my requests and get the things that I need. That's not first and foremost what prayer is all about. Prayer is first and foremost all about the privilege of talking to the God of the universe. It's, it's, a, it's what comes with the package deal of being connected to Jesus Christ, of abiding on the vine, of, of getting now to be in a real, legitimate, personal relationship, a personal, intimate relationship with the living God of the universe. That amazing privilege. Let that sink in. That's the core essence of prayer. It's about relationship before it is anything else, which is what the Lord is going to teach us. And the truth of the matter is that experts will tell you that a relationship is in its final stages of decay when it goes quiet. So if you're still arguing and fighting with your spouse, there is reason to hope. It's when the relationship goes quiet that it's on the final stages of oblivion. Because that's when people have given up. And some of us have given up on prayer. Or given up on much prayer. Because we're somewhere in the final stages of our relationship with Christ. Prayer tells a different story. I want to um, look at the question of prayer under the title of Make FaceTime for God because prayer matters. I, I want to look at answering two questions this morning, as I did last week. The outline breaks down nicely again in why pray and how to pray. But in order for me to put that outline together, I had to reverse how Jesus, how, how Luke records the teaching of Jesus. 
And we know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John had great liberty with how they placed the ideas together as the Spirit led them for different theological themes. The, the teachings surrounding the Lord's Prayer in Matthew are quite different than the teachings surrounding the prayer of the Lord's Prayer in Luke. And, and this morning I want to take the text and I want to preach from the, the end back. So I want to, first of all, look at verses 11 through 13 of chapter 11. Then I want to look at verses 5 through 10. And then I want to look at verses 2 through 4. And, and the framework is this, why pray? I think that's a really critical question. I, I think we need to know why we should pray before we know how to pray. Because motivation has a lot to do with whether we're going to pray or not. And in some cases, for many of us, we've tried prayer. We've had various levels of success. We've had great moments and great times and great seasons of prayer. And then we've let our prayer life kind of slip and fade. And we get frustrated and we try again. And sometimes we come to the place where, well, what's the point in praying? Why should I pray? God never gives me what I ask for anyway. Life just seems to get worse. The closer I get to the Lord and the more I pray, I can count on more trouble coming my way. So why would I pray? I'm convinced that Jesus was answering this question when he says to the disciples, he gives them this illustration in verses 11 through 13. Look at it with me. This is the first answer I'd like to give as to why pray from Jesus' lips himself. Which of you fathers? And by the way, Jesus regularly used... um, a literary method or an illustration method whereby he would argue from the lesser to the greater. He would say, if you as human beings are able to do this, how much greater is God? And so he, he is in this particular place. You know, because a lot of people have said, look, at, I, I have trouble praying because I had a horrible father. And whenever I think about praying to God, praying to my Heavenly Father, I, I struggle with that because my father didn't love me, my father didn't treat me well. My father was a horrible example, and, and, and on and on, on and on we, we say. So Jesus, I think, is addressing this here, and you'll see what I mean when I, when I continue to read. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, if you then though you are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give, and we're very surprised when he says this, the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So under the first first, uh, illustration of why pray, uh, I think Jesus is, is making the point here, we pray because God is a good good father. Why would we pray? Because God is a good, good father, and you want him in your life fully engaged. Now, I want, I want you to notice here, he makes the point that even evil human fathers, if they are asked for something by their child, will not give them something or will not replace that request with something that would hurt them. He, he makes the point here, look at, in comparison to the living God, 
And, and human fathers who, have sin, who are sinners and, 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 and embody sinfulness. If a human father, if you were to ask a human father for a fish, he would not give you something that would hurt you in exchange. And, and so he says to, to his audience, if, if, a, if an earthly father would not replace a, a request with something that would hurt you, how much more would a good, good father who loves you not do that? So, so don't accuse your heavenly father of giving you hurtful things when you ask him for things because that's not who he is. Now listen, by the way, he's saying here, you may ask the heavenly father for a fish and he may not give you a fish, but he is not going to give you a snake. You may ask the heavenly father for an egg and he may not give you an egg, but he is not going to give you a scorpion. The Heavenly Father is not going to replace your request with something that would hurt you. He may replace your request because he's going to say what he's going to do at the end here. He may replace your request, but it will be with something that you desperately need and are not asking him for. And therefore, he says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who are asking him, to those who are praying to him, to those who are asking for things. See, so, so regularly our prayer list is a schedule of things to ask God for. We want this thing, we want that thing, we want this person, we want that job, we want this relationship. We ask God for things. Regularly, things are not going to help us to be more healthy with the living God. Regularly, he has to step in and say, what you really need... While you're asking for things, is the full dose of the Holy Spirit. What you really need in your life is the spiritual stamina and spiritual power. While you are asking for things, I am arming you up with the power of God. I am giving you heavy artillery of the Spirit that may enable you to have what you need in terms of the spiritual resources for the journey that is set before you. But I won't give you something that will hurt you. Because I'm a good, good father. I will not do that. And then he talks, about, and then he gives another picture, another illustration here. And he says um, in verse 5, Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. Or maybe more like this, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend. Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will, will be opened. 
Now, of course, this last section in this section has been yanked out of context on a regular basis. Just ask, seek, knock, and God is obligated to give you what you ask for. Put it in context here. Context always matters. We're answering the question, why pray? Jesus is answering the question, why pray? And Jesus is saying, first of all, you pray because God is a good, good father. But secondly, you pray because asking God matters. You know, for those of us who become bewildered or overwhelmed or tired or frustrated or done with prayer, Jesus is saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Asking God matters. Because so often we come to this place of, what does it matter? God is sovereign over the universe. He's in charge. Why bother to even pray to him? Jesus is saying, asking God matters. Now, let's break down this situation. It isn't as powerful to us in a Canadian context as it would be for an audience in the ancient Near East. And in some other parts of our world where hospitality is a big, big deal. When Jesus is using this illustration, the situation is dire. The situation is desperate. There is a, a home that has no food, and a guest arrives, and all of the Max Milk stores are closed. Sobeys is shut down. Superstore is closed. There's no food anywhere. And in an ancient Near East context, they didn't have to have an invitation to come to your home like we do here in Canada. They just showed up like they do in the East Coast, Pastor Nick. They just show up. How you doing, boy? Here I am. I's the boy that builds the boat. I'm here to build it. And so in the East Coast, that's what they do. They just show up. But here in Ontario, so maybe we just narrow it down to Ontario. In the GTA, you don't just show up. You got to have an invitation. Why do you have to have an invitation? Because we want to make sure we got food in the house. We, we need to have everything in order. But here, that's not the way it was. And when you showed up and there wasn't something, that was desperate. This situation was very, very desperate. And, and you got to get this picture because Jesus is painting the picture of what prayer really is. Prayer is desperation. Because you have the situation where you have one man who doesn't have and another man that has. And keep in mind, the illustration is not to be meant to, to actually parallel exactly, but you have the man who has is, is the representation of the heavenly father. The man who doesn't have is you and I. We don't have. And we desperately need because our spiritual essence is on the line because we can't give this person bread. So he comes to his friend and he's banging on the door, calling out, I need some bread. Now, um, the second part of this situation is it's incredibly inconvenient for the guy who has the bread. But I don't want you to get the impression that, that the Lord God has seen this as you're inconvenient to us because that would miss the point. So stay with me. It's very inconvenient because the guy is in bed with his children, okay? And anybody who's a parent here of small kids knows something. That when you get those little kids shut up and asleep at night, you would rather cut off your legs and your arms than wake them up. And so this guy is like, hey, 
I don't know if I can get to the bread and not wake up these kids because that's worse than anything. And so the, the statement is here, he isn't going to the bread cupboard to get bread because he's his friend. He's going to the bread cupboard and risking this inconvenient moment and risking waking up the kids and the rest of his night being a disaster because it is so urgent. He says, not because I'm your friend, but because of the nature of your request and your boldness, your shameless, bold impudence, whereby you are so desperate and so needy that you would risk everything about my convenience to get what you need. Now, God is not saying I need convenience and all that. What he's saying is he's talking about the reality of our attitude in prayer. Not that God is unwilling to answer, but that we don't have a passion and urgency to ask. That's why Jesus says, go ahead and ask. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask with wrong motives that you might spend it on your pleasures. This wasn't about pleasure. This was about spiritual urgency. I have to get bread or I am going to be the spiritual zero in town because I can't look after my host or can't, can't host my guests. This was a dire and desperate moment. Maybe you can remember this. I think you can because the Greek word here for this boldness with which we're to approach Jesus in prayer is the Greek word anadian. Does that sound like anything you know? You put a C in front of that thing and you've got us. <laughs> and we Canadians need to shed our Canadianness in prayer, which is soft and feeble and you know not not want to ruffle anything and we need to become anadians, all right? Anadians in prayer. And approach God with the understanding that I'm praying because I am so needy and God is so great. I don't have, he does have, I need to go to him with urgency and have an attitude of urgency because prayer matters. Asking God matters. And prayer, my beloved friends, is a bold move. It is coming to terms with our own dependency. Our own dependency on God is coming to terms with our own humility. It is coming to terms with our own weakness. It is coming to terms with our own deficiencies. It is coming to terms with the fact that, fact that we don't have and God does have everything we need. And so prayer is a recognition of that in our hearts. And when we come to God in that, with that approach, not because he's our God or not because he's our friend, but because of the urgency is the point here. He comes to us and answers us because it's about relationship with God. Prayer is how God's people benefit from the reign of Christ. His open-handed access to the blessings of the age to come. Your kingdom come. There's a grand picture here. 
of which the choir sang this morning, of the riches of the glory that is yet to come. You realize that, that, that God's stockpile of riches is infinite and inexhaustible. And, and eternity is a picture of the inexhaustible and infinite resources of our Heavenly Father. And, and prayer is our request of God to reach into the infinite resources that He has in Christ Jesus laid up for us in glory and reach, reach in and take out a morsel and grant it to our situation. A, a break-in of the age to come brought into our need that we might experience the blessing and provision of Almighty God in ways that we never imagine or think. And that's what Jesus is pointing out to us here. Your heavenly Father has a storehouse of supply. Now boldly, with trust and dependency, go to Him and ask and seek and knock because He delights to open up the door. And provide for you. The kingdom, his kingdom come, we pray short, shortly in the Lord's prayer here, is all about the kingdom that is set out before us. The kingdom inaugurated now, but in its fullest form in the future, in the eternal state that he brings into the present. And every time you're praying, that's what you're asking God to do. Lord God, would you bring something from your eternal resources into my present situation? Because I desperately need you. And what he brings out of his storehouse might not be exactly what you ask him for. It will be exactly what you need. So how? I want to quickly give you five descriptions that Jesus gives us here on how to pray. Because the disciples found Jesus praying one day, which was quite his normal habit and routine. And I know you've heard it, but it bears repeating, if Jesus, the Son of God, practiced prayer, how in the world should we think that we could get along in life without I know you've heard that. So one of the disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. This is a real act of discipleship for us. Jesus, from his word this morning, is discipling us. So allow him to disciple you. How to pray, Lord. And the first is this. He says, when you pray, say, Father... It's the language of relationship. I, I've been expressing that to you since the beginning of, of speaking to you this morning. That prayer is the language of relationship. First and foremost, I want you to think about that and meditate on it. I want you to think and ponder it all week long. I want you to rethink prayer today 
I, I want this, to this, this morning to be a, a, an opportunity for us to rethink prayer. Prayer is a relationship. Prayer is about a relationship. The language of prayer is about relationship. And the introduction to prayer is father. Relationship. Our father, not by creation, by the way, but by new creation. Not everybody in the world can call the God of glory father. Only those who are saved through, the son, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his children by virtue of redemption. And this is an amazing offer to us. You get to call God Father. It's a privilege. He's approachable. Fathers know this. We know this. Parents, you can join in on this and understand this. We love for our children to come to us. We love for our children to initiate a conversation, usually. We love for the kids to, to want to talk to us. Our Heavenly Father longs for us to talk to Him. Call me Father. Call out to me Father. And so the first, the first um, attitude we should have is uh, of reverence. We should pray reverently because God is your father. He is not your buddy and he is not a dispensary. He's your father. Your heavenly father who loves you. He's a good, good father. What's important for us to realize here is he has a title for us. We come to him as father. You don't barge into the presence of God and just chirp out his name. Father, hallowed be your name. You know, we have, we have um, language of respect in our culture. Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, Reverend So-and-so. Yet sometimes we think we can barge into God's presence. Hey, God, I need this, this, and this. Jesus teaches us here about an attitude of reverence. God is your heavenly Father. And we come to him and we pray to him, hallowed be your name, O God. In other words, make me ever aware of the awesome holiness of who you are and cause my life to delight in the reality of who you are and the holiness of who you are. That should change how we pray after stating that. Maybe we wouldn't ask him for all the cheap trinkets that we do after we've been in as an introduction into his holy presence as Father, God, hallowed be your name. His name's to be honored. In fact, the verb here, hallowed be your name, is, a, is calling for action of the prayer. Not just a description. But action, Lord, would you cause me to hallow your name this day? Make your father's, make the reality of your father, uh, the essence of your reverence, calling for him to glorify himself in your life. D.A. Carson put it this way, this 
this implies and points us to the fact that we're not, we're not calling to be made holy, but that God's name would be hallowed through us. Not that God doesn't want us to be holy, but this isn't about coming to God with a shopping list. Oh, God, make me holy. Yeah, we want that. But we start with, oh, God, this is about you and your holiness and your greatness. There are certain cultures that pray better than others from my experience. Our culture is not one of the great prayers in the world. It really isn't. In fact, we might be at the bottom of the cultural pecking list for, for the, the core essence of prayer. We can learn so much. I hope you do. I- interface with other cultural prayers and prayers from people of other cultures who begin with long, long recitations of the glories of God and His excellence and His majesty and His glory and get them move their hearts into the right framework of talking to the Lord of glory who is in heaven above. He won't share His glory, but He loves to display it through us. The second phrase I notice here is, Your kingdom come. We should be praying submissively. God is our king, retains the right to rule. Prayer is not about taking over his sovereignty for a few moments. There's lots of horrible prayer advice out there, lots of horrible prayer lingo out there. People trying to, attempting to, to tell you certain things that are absolutely misrepresenting prayer. Giving the impression that you should stand on your rights and you should call out to God and remind him of what he owes you. <laughs> God owes us nothing, not a thing. We come to him with humility and with submission. Oh God, my king and my Lord. Our present experience of the glorious rule of Christ and his future reign, that's what we're acknowledging. Prayer changes me. When I come to him and recognize his lordship in my life, We learn to live expectantly, enjoying the reign of Christ now, but knowing full well that we are benefiting from his glorious riches laid up for us in eternity. We are borrowing from that now in prayer. And he loves to give it to us. There's another phrase. It says, give us each day our daily bread. We're to live dependently. God is your provider. We resist dependency because we battle to trust. We store up all kinds of food in our house, in our freezers, because we can't bear to walk into our house and not see what we're going to be eating for the next five months. That's not the way it is in the vast majority of the world, you know. That's not the way it was in those particular days. We stockpile because we trust what we can see. How lame we are. And I'm not, by the way, don't want to hear me wrong. I'm not recommending there's something wrong with freezers and fridges and all of that. Pastor Kelvin loves his fridge and freezer. Yes, he does. There's nothing wrong with that. Not at all. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what Jesus is saying. But we, we stockpile because we actually trust in our sight lines. 
And prayer is about learning and retraining and training to trust in Jesus. The, the living God, see, we want to see where our next meal is coming from. But the living God wants us to trust him in its absence. That's what this looks like. We're, we're really saying, you know, Lord, make abundant provision of the end time feast that we believe is coming. Could you just give us enough for today? And, and if we can trust the Lord for our soul for all of eternity, how is it that we struggle to trust him for our food just for today, for our needs just for today. Why are you today stewing about tomorrow? Why are so many of you in here this morning? Why did you come here today all worried about tomorrow? How am I going to do this? How am I going to face that? How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to deal with that person? How am I going to deal with the fact that I don't have that? Well, you don't need it until tomorrow. So why don't you just trust God for today? And he will provide for tomorrow. Our trust and dependence are only as real as our prayer life is robust. God wants us to pray because it really is an act of trust in him. It is an act of dependency. There's another phrase. It says, forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. We should pray repentantly. This is a believer's prayer. Make no mistake about it. We have been justified, we've been saved, we, we, we are no longer under condemnation, we are forgiven, all of that. But we also know that in a day-to-day -day basis, we become spotted with sin. And the believers should be praying all the time, Lord God, forgive me for my sins. A conscious awareness in our relationships, it's all about relationship again. The closer you become to the Lord, the more you notice the spots in your life. Oh, God, forgive me for these sins, because he's our partner. But it's important that we know something here. We are called upon to live repentant lives ourselves, but we are also to extend that to our others. I think it's no accident. In fact, I'm convinced, that, of course, it isn't, or it's not just a word choice. But in verse 4, Luke actually uses two different words. He says, forgive us our sins in the classic use of the word sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted against us. He actually changes from the classic word of sin to the word indebted against us. And I'm sure he does that for a reason. I'm sure the Holy Spirit, there's, no, there's, all, there's always a reason why there's a change like that. And I believe the picture here is, whatever anybody's ever done to you is nothing in comparison to what you have done to the Lord. You have sinned against the Lord, and anything that anybody's ever done to you is merely an indebtedness. So... When you come to pray, don't ask the Lord Jesus to do something in your life that you're unwilling to do for others in your life. Don't expect Jesus to give you something that you are not willing to turn around and give back. Now, by the way, this is not conditional on our salvation. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, if you don't forgive, you won't be saved. This is a, he's already talking about people who are in the kingdom of God. He is simply saying that this is the evidence of your salvation. 
Forgive us our sins because we also, because that's who we are, Lord. You have forgiven us and we are forgiving people. We live repentantly. We have no right to ask Jesus for something we're unwilling ourselves to give. And finally, lead us not into temptation. Now, wait a second. That verse has always, that phrase has always leapt out at me like, what? God would lead us into temptation? We are to pray fearfully because God is our protector. The Bible makes it very clear in James 1, 13 to 15 that God does not ever entice people to sin. Not ever, not one time. It is never ever your good, good father's intention to try and lead you into sin. That's not the case. What this is teaching here is for all of us when we come to prayer, that we understand our proneness to sin. Oh, Lord God, I know who I am, or maybe I don't even know who I am. But Lord Jesus, I I never want to fail you. And I know there are weaknesses in my life. I know there are things that I am tempted to. I know I've been ruminating on things over this last little while, things that I know would not be healthy for me. And I'm just asking you, oh God, because I want to live a life that hallows your name. Don't even take me anywhere near a temptation. Don't take me into the, any, any place of the appearance of evil. Lord, steer my life away from anything or anyone. And by the way, uh, this isn't uh, just a simple prayer. This is a very profound prayer because it may be very painful. The answer to this may be extremely painful. What you and I are asking the Lord to do is to take from our lives anything or anyone or anything we're doing or want to do that would lead us into temptation. We are praying and inviting the Lord to purge our lives and our direction of anything or anyone that would take our life in a direction that would be displeasing to God. So we don't pray, we don't pray any of this lightly. Every single thing that we pray in the core essence of God's teaching here on prayer is profound and powerful. So we pray fearfully because our proneness to sin requires us being led far from tempting things. So, oh dear Lord, fashion my day in such a way that I will not come near anything or anyone or any thought that would lead me into temptation to sin against you. That will radically change your life. Beloved, we started out by saying, you know, we want to commodify prayer. We so easily want to make it a commercial transaction. Most of our lives is, hey, Lord, and then as soon as we can get into, I need this today, I need that today. Oh, and please, and oh, by the way, I'm sorry yesterday for, for not standing up for you, but you know how weak I am, and you know how I, I, I just shut up when people who don't like you start saying bad things about you. So I know you understand. And, and by the way, I'll be back to you in three or four days when I need some more stuff. That, that's kind of what 
often characterizes our prayer life. It's just transactions with our heavenly dispensary. And we wonder why our prayer life doesn't really have vitality, why we really, really aren't that excited or enthused about prayer, why it's such a chore. Let me ask you something. When you really love someone, and I mean really love someone, do you find it a chore to be with them and to talk to them? To spend time with them? I'm not trying to live, lay a guilt trip on you at all. I'm trying to talk to you about revolutionizing your prayer life. Stop viewing it as a commodity or a commercial transaction with the living God and start viewing it for what it really is. A deep, profound relationship with the God of the universe. Samuel Storms, in his book, Reaching God's Ear, which is a, a tremendous book, he was um, writing there about George Mueller. And if any of you know of the story of George Mueller, in brief, uh, George Mueller um, was in ministry and, and in particular in orphanage ministry. And on many occasions, he had all kinds of little children who didn't have any food for the next day. And he had no idea where that food was coming from, ever other than he prayed, and in marvelous ways, things just came. But it's interesting because George Mueller, which surprised us, in fact, he recorded, if I'm correct, that he had over 30,000 answers to prayer. And, and George Mueller, he, he, he writes that for many years he would struggle to pray. It's hard for us to understand because he was such a powerful man of prayer. And his mind would often wander, just like mine. I thought, this is just like me. And, but then he learned to approach God as a father and friend. And, and he would talk to God about what he was learning in the scriptures. And, and he, would just, he would just enjoy being with God. And the result was a deep intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Which led George Mueller from there to share requests out of his deep relationship with God. And he quickly learned that God was eager to respond. And the blessings began to pour in, enough to fill notebooks and notebooks with answers. The more answers he experienced, the more he desired to pray. Not because it was a commercial commodity, but because prayer engaged him in abiding in the Lord with such profound power that he couldn't... He couldn't think of anything else but being with the Lord and talking to Him so that their conversations moved in, in parallel, in sync, so that what He was asking was exactly what the Lord wanted. And when you're talking the language of the Lord and you're asking the Lord for the exact things He wants, we know we have answers from the Lord. He delights to give to us. You know, so many of us, and I've said this to you many, many times, and I've tried to encourage you with this to say, our God is a prayer-answering God. And many of you are saying, I, haven't, I just haven't experienced the answers of God. It feels like my prayers bouncing off the ceiling, all that kind of stuff. I just, I don't hear anything. I don't sense anything. Listen, maybe it's about relationship. Go with an attitude of relationship. Because in the Psalms, and the psalm, Psalms are, many of the Psalms are just prayer. You want to learn how to pray? Pray the Psalms. And in the Psalms, 
Over 27 times, it says there, I called out in some form, I called out to the Lord and he answered me. It doesn't talk about specifics. It talks about David the psalmist in an intimate relationship with God who says, I call out to God because he is there. I call out to God because he is real. I talk to God and he actually answers me. One of those powerful verses is this, in the day of my trouble, I will call on you and you will answer me. It's not talking about a shopping list. It's not talking about commercializing prayer. It's talking about relationship, the language of relationship. Oh God, when everybody else turns their back on me, when everybody else runs away from me, when everything is gone from me, when I'm in great desperation, I can call out to you and one thing I can be certain of, you answer me. That's what prayer is. Prayer is prayer is an intimate, abiding, remaining, vital, deepening relationship with a real living God who loves you and longs to hear from you. He will answer you. He will answer you. He will answer you. So call on him. Cry out to him. Wake him up at an inconvenient time because he never sleeps and he never slumbers. And he will not send you away. Father, would you give us a new profound orientation in prayer? May it be our relationship with you first. And let everything flow from that afterwards, oh God. Just to be in your presence, oh God. Just to enjoy intimacy with the God of the universe. Just to know that I'm loved and that someone is listening to me and that someone loves that I'm there. Just to know that, oh God. Would that be my prayer life? And all these other things will be added unto you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we have forgiven those who are indebted against us. And lead us not into temptation. For Jesus' sake, amen.